You are listening to CEO Perspectives, a podcast by the Conference Board. Welcome to this episode of CEO Perspectives, a signature series by the Conference Board. CEO Perspectives are conversations that take an objective, nonpartisan look at a range of timely topics that matter most to business leaders. To help make sense of these topics and how they'll unfold, we'll sit down with thought leaders and do what we do best at the Conference Board, provide trusted insights for what's ahead. I'm Steve Odlin, the CEO of the Conference Board and the host of this series. And in today's conversation, we're going to discuss financial inclusivity. Billions around the globe now lack access to banks and other financial institutions or underutilize and misuse them. So why is expanding financial inclusion so important? And what can governments in the private sector do to close the gap? Well, joining me today is Dan Houston, the Chairman, President, and CEO of Principal Financial Group. Dan, welcome to the program. Steve, thank you for having me. It's uh, what a wonderful opportunity. So, Dan, you've been with Principal your entire career. It's, what, 38 years now, which is really a remarkable uh, career and, uh, you know, to be completely celebrated. Tell us a little bit about Principal and your commitment to the company for the past almost four decades now. Yeah, it's been a tremendous ride. And and I've really feel fortunate to have been here at Principal for that period of time, because graduating out of Iowa State University, I wanted to make a difference. And the Principal Financial Group gave me that opportunity to do that. I grew up in the retirement business right when 401k was becoming popular. Uh, And again, a lot of educating of employers and intermediaries in our industry about the benefits of 401k, became the chief operating officer back and then back in 2015, became a chairman and chief executive officer. And it's been uh, a wonderful experience as I've worked my way through there. But for those of you who are uh, listening, who may not know the company as well, roughly $1.4 trillion of assets under administration. And we manage over $600 billion of assets under management. We're in the retirement business. Uh, we're in the asset management business. And we still have U.S. benefits and protection, which is group benefits, uh, life insurance, and uh, group dental, for example. But our primary focus is on small to medium-sized businesses. And for the record, we have over 53 million customers spread across about 80 different countries. So a big organization who wakes up every day thinking about financial inclusion and making sure that our customers are well-prepared for anything that might, what they're going to face in terms of a challenge. Yeah. And so, you know, you're spread out uh, globally and this is really important. I think pre-pandemic, I'll probably get the numbers wrong, but there there were nearly 2 billion people globally who were reportedly not served by any bank or financial institution. And, you know, as you're as you're looking through this, financial security is is what you're really working on. You're helping people secure their lives to secure their retirements and so forth. So, you know, this whole financial insecurity thing is a big deal. Talk about what it is, why you feel strongly about it. And, you know, there's also unintended consequences. There, there really is. And you said it well, Steve, it is a big deal. Make no mistake about it. We're living longer and we're living in a world where financial inclusion is there. However, we need to make sure that there's access to the right products and services in order to become financially independent as we as we go throughout our entire careers and then ultimately retire. And we thought about that a lot and determined that Principal Financial Group would step up 
and fund the Global Financial Inclusion Index. We went to 42 different countries and did a massive amount of work to identify, number one, what is the current, what is the current environment for financial inclusivity and where can we focus our time and attention to improve upon financial security and to do that, we built a framework. And that framework was really based on three things. What do governments do? Secondly, what do the financial system do? And then lastly, what the employer model can do for individuals. And frankly, the outcome of that work has been tremendous as a way to try to inform uh, governments, uh, employers, and individuals on the importance of financial security. Yeah, so this global financial inclusion index is a new thing that you're leading. And you mentioned you did a lot of work across 40 plus countries. What is it exactly? I mean, so what is it, what is it attempting to measure and you know, how is it expressed? Yeah, so we work with the United Nations and they identify financial inclusion as an enabler for economic growth, as well as the key components to the 2030 sustainable development goal. So that's that sort of anchors this entire body of research. And we know that for individuals, more access to individuals for financial products is just imperative. Now you talk about why. Well, at the most basic needs, it's everything you would expect. It's food, it's clean water, it's housing. But eventually, once you've satisfied those, you're trying to set yourself up for uh, a quality of life. And that quality of life, of course, leading to financial security and retirement. And the study does find uh, in a number of different areas that you could uh, improve the odds of reaching financial security. And I'm sure you would not be surprised for me to say that education is a big part of that. So again, well-educated communities lead to well-paying jobs, which lead to healthier communities. And the, one of the other outcomes of this was uh, understanding the importance of those three areas. What can government do? What can the financial services system do? And then ultimately what employers can do for their employees. So is the uh, Global Financial Inclusion Index done on a country basis or do you also have um, you know, sub areas? Well, we do it on, yeah, we do it country by country, 42 different countries. We modulate that information to ensure that there's equality across that because a dollar in the U.S. is different than a, a, a rupee in India. And so, again, we use the World Bank methodology to ensure that we have a level playing field by which we're measuring these issues. And what you generally find is governments, just like here in the United States, have what I'll call a sustainable or you know, a, a component of financial security that is baseline. And although, as you know, in 1935, President Roosevelt never intended the social security system to provide a 100% of someone's income in retirement, unfortunately for some percentage of our population, that's become true. It was never intended to be used for that purpose. The challenge for us then is how do you leverage the employer? Well, if we looked at the US, we'd call it a 401k. If we were in Japan, it would be 401j. If it were in Chile, we'd call it an AFP and a 4A in Mexico. And then we, if it were in Hong Kong, we'd call it a mandatory provident fund. Most countries that on the top third of the financial inclusion index have some form of employer-based retirement savings. 
And then the last one would be in the middle, and that's financial systems. That's access to credit, your ability to get a credit card, the ability to get a loan for a small business, the ability to gain access for a small business to, uh, to make an investment in property or equipment to manufacture, to set up a shop. So all of those were looked at country by country, but then standardized for the sake of ranking those results. Some of the cynics in the crowd will say, well, you know, financial institutions do this and just to grow their business and everything. But but you really took a different approach because you said, we're going to call it financial inclusion. We're going to measure it, access. And that access is important, as you said, and I think it's really important that people hear this, that it's, it's, it's for individual access to credit. You know, you mentioned credit cards, but it's also um, personal loans, home loans, and those types of things, which allow people to engage, you know, in, in, in asset purchases. It's also retirement, but it's also uh, small business development. And you are, by, by measuring this and focusing on it, you are enabling millions of small businesses around the world to get started, you know, and, and they, th- these things get started at the kitchen table, largely uh, on credit cards, at, because there, there just is no source of capital to start a small business. And yet the world is all about these small businesses, right? Well, and if you think about that, Steve, in the context of availability of credit, credit's never been more readily available from more than one source, right? I mean, the democratizing of credit and, and the credit markets is now available to more than most of us through something more than just a bank or a financial institution. Think about some of the micro loans that have been stood up in places like India and Africa. So there has been a lot of creativity in this space. Well, one area I would focus on is the role of, of trust and the perception around financial services. And again, this is where uh, the industry needs to do a better job of ensuring that individuals know that they can trust the system. You, you, your lead off comment was, well, these, these organizations get rich or that it's, it's self-serving. When I think in reality, some of the most competitive products out there are made available to individuals and to small employers because it's become so incredibly efficient. I think as an industry, more has to be done around simplification. It needs to be uh, more less fussy language more straightforward language, more opportunities for education and advice to have access to this information. We all need to become better informed on these topics than we are today. That's that's for certain. Yeah, and, and the simplification of that language is 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 an important point. You know, we, we we you know we all understand why there's regulation is to level the playing field and protect the uh, the consumers and the individuals. But the problem is sometimes it goes so far that nobody understands it. <laughs> it's overregulated. The line, yeah, you have to have an attorney to understand this, and then you go, "What am I doing?" But if you think about the alternative to these traditional channels and, and regulated channels, it's not good. It's not, and that's that's exactly right. The there's too many uh, unscrupulous personalities in some of those uh, sectors that will take advantage of people who are uninformed or uneducated or. Uh, just not prepared to have those conversations. And you and I both know if we just took a proxy and, and, or, uh, you know, for the purchasing of a mutual fund, there's a lot of complexity in that. And there's been a lot of work on the part of the trades as well as, uh, as part of the SEC to try to find some straightforward language in those first two or three pages to help people understand the product. 
I think the problem is actually bigger than that. It isn't that we can't understand and read the proxy. It's that we need to be able to sit down with somebody in who in language that we can understand can explain what it is we're trying to solve for. Are we trying to solve for a college education funding? Are we trying to fund a retirement? Are we trying to set money aside for a car? If we're running a small business, we know that we have certain capacity constraints. How do we borrow money to buy our next piece of plant and equipment? And to your point, there are really good firms and entities out there today that can provide that input, that advice, and that guidance to make good decisions. And just like you and I don't work for free, advisors that are out there in that capacity that are that are properly credentialed, they should be compensated for their ability to provide you with good insights and perspective and consultation. Yeah. And, you, you know, there's a, the old mantra, you, you know, you get what you measure. And so the whole idea of the Global Financial Inclusion Index was to drive inclusion and, and to drive access and to make it easier for people to engage with the scoop, the scrupulous, not unscrupulous, the scrupulous players in the industry, which is consumer protection in and of itself. Yeah, if you were to say what were your top key takeaways from the Global Financial Inclusion Index, the first would be is there is no right answer. Said differently, whether it's government, the financial system, or the employer, the takeaway is that it's some combination and weighting of each one of those three that gets the best outcome. So Singapore got number one, the United States got number two, the next eight tend to be the Nordic countries. And remember, some of the economies around the world just haven't been developed as fast as the ones I just mentioned. So number one, it's a balanced approach. Number two, government does have to provide some sort of baseline support. And again, you can see that in the results on those that sort of anchor the bottom. There just isn't trust, there isn't access, and there isn't that government program. And then the third is, I can't even begin to describe how important across each one of those three pillars that literacy and financial understanding was important. Understanding what you and I will get for Social Security, understanding the terms and conditions of a credit loan, understanding what's available to me at my, to me at my employer, and frankly, taking advantage of those, not when you're in your 30s and 40s, but right when you come out of school, whether it's high school or college, setting yourself up for financial independence by making those decisions, either through protection products or accumulation products. We're talking with Dan Houston about uh, financial insecurity and the Global Financial Inclusion Index. We're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. As you and your company monitor the volatile and uncertain economy, the award-winning forecast team at the Conference Board predicts a downturn by the end of 2022. Recession will further compound the crises that have recently upended expectations, from a deadly pandemic to a war in Ukraine and the highest inflation in decades. Yet, unprecedented crises also present unforeseen opportunities if you have a trusted, proven navigator by your side. With that in mind, and as the Conference Board has always done, we are providing you with daily, timely, and relevant content that will guide the business community through the economic storm. These trusted insights are being gathered on our website and are available to help your company master the challenges. To find out how you can chart a course for the future which will allow your business to emerge stronger on the other side, visit our free economic hub entitled Navigating the Economic Storm, Your Indispensable Guide Through the Global Recession. 
located at conference-board.org slash topics slash recession. Welcome back to CEO Perspectives. I'm your host, Steve Odlin from the Conference Board, and I'm joined today by Dan Houston, the Chairman, President, and CEO of Principal Financial Group. So, Dan, we're talking about financial security. We're talking about how these people around the world can engage well, how do you, you know, what do you think the role of government versus the the private sector is in alleviating the issues? And I know, you know, most of our listeners are here in the U.S. and there's one perspective, but your perspective is global and governments, that role may change um, uh, internationally as well. Yeah, and, and I think a lot of times it depends on where that society is in terms of their maturity. And again, a lot of governments uh, have already figured out that it's important to have that safety net around food and security and water. And they're still migrating their way to providing uh, more durable solutions for financial security uh, in retirement. I would also say that when you talk about the developed countries, it's to not to get in the way. It's to ensure that you have public policy, regulations, rules, legislative decisions that actually encourage the private sector and the public sector to work in concert in order to solve for financial security. So again, it's access to products, it's it's letting marketers and distributors and intermediators that are financial advisors to be able to have uh, the kind of uh, flexibility to introduce as many ideas as possible uh, around products and, and solutions that solve for uh, an individual or a small business's financial needs. Yeah, now, you know, not every government is the same, obviously, not every economy, not every country is the same. Talk about some of the more difficult areas of the world, you know, where the ratings are low and what's different about those governments and that those areas than, you know, some of the more developed areas. You can see as you move from the very bottom, number 42 to number one, any one of those three pillars that we've been talking about today, whether it's government, financial system or employer, they need to rise together. And that the, the bottom third of that list generally falls into economies that just frankly have are still trying to solve for the most basic needs, but that doesn't diminish the importance and the need for them to do that. Yeah. And, you know, it, it, there's been a lot written about sub-Saharan Africa and some of the and countries around the world with, you know, non-democratic governments, but, you know, Micro lending is is important in these areas, and it's it, you might want to give a couple examples because it, it's really remarkable how little money it takes in some of these areas for these small businesses to get going, family businesses, and so forth. I have spent time in Africa twice this year, and have spent a lot of time in my life in India, and these micro loans and the, the work that, in large parts, coming from the more developed countries. Number one on the list, clean water. Uh, and so water purification capabilities, and there are a lot of solutions that can help for the purification of water, because as you know, it can cause uh, blindness in children. And there's just an ongoing desire uh, on the part of every country out there to do something around uh, proper uh, clean water and, and sanitation. So that's sort of at the most uh, basic level. The second is around, and, and again, these are not necessarily expensive to drill the well and to create a, a filtration system. As a matter of fact, just to give you an idea, Principal Financial Group, we had a, a 
conference with our clients not that long ago. And one of our activities was working with a uh, an NGO that was working with the World Bank, and we assembled water filtration systems to be uh, shipped over to Sub-Saharan Africa to provide, again, uh, filtered water for their for their use. But good examples in in uh, in many countries is even a sewing machine that an investment of fifteen, twenty, twenty five dollars can allow them to have a sewing machine or a loom that would allow them to uh, make a living and a decent living. Uh, and, and again, that's where it all starts. So by U.S. standards or European standards, you might say, my goodness, how far could a micro loan of 25 or $50 go? It actually goes a very long way. And again, hats off to the many organizations out there that try to engage and provide this, this level of financing. But but see that's important. I mean, you know, fifteen twenty dollars, fifty dollars for you know to, to to put somebody in business, enable them to take care of themselves and their family. You know, it, it you just don't you don't think about that in Western Europe and and you know in North America and you know some of the more developed areas. But this this is at the core of it. And if you don't have financial security and you don't have access, and if you don't have your index to track this and to push it, then it you know it devolves into usurious kinds of um, of uh, uh, access to capital and and very dangerous kinds of black market things you know where people get involved with you know shady folks let's just leave it at that and it 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 never is is good so this this whole effort is really important to bringing people lifting people out of poverty and and making a huge difference that's exactly right as a matter of fact I, I have a trip planned uh, here. In the next 30 days, and I'll be in Malaysia, Singapore, Japan, and throughout uh, the Middle East. And I'm just going off memory and thinking about Malaysia, which ranked, I believe, 21st out of 42. And one of the benefits that I'll have when I go speak to government officials and to our various partners that we do business with there is hard data in my hands that allows us to, to basically benchmark Malaysia to other countries that they compete with that are in the region or they're competing for jobs or manufacturing to say, here's where you stack up relative to the government component. <clears throat> here's where you stack up with financial systems. And here's what you can do on the employer side. And principal today is a very big player along with CIMB Bank in, uh, in Malaysia and providing that employer-based solution. But in the absence of the principal financial global inclusion index, you don't have a metric, right? You're, you're out there sort of saying, hey, you should do more. Well, the real point here is here's some data that would help. You want to talk about India? You want to talk about Norway? Would you like to talk about Singapore? Would you like to talk about Indonesia? It allows you to have a more comprehensive conversation to say, here's two or three ideas in each one of these areas that you could contemplate. In the absence of this work, to the best of our knowledge, that does not exist. Right. And if you went to Malaysia, they probably think that they were pretty good and, you know, probably no room for improvement, but you show them that they're halfway down the list of 42. And, and then you talk about what can, it becomes a more constructive conversation at that point and, and, and hopefully helps their citizens along the way. You know, a little earlier before the break, you mentioned education and I, I, you know, it was interesting because, you know, here we're talking about financial security and then you started talking about water, you started talking about basic food and you talk about education, which you go, well, wait a minute, how does all this fit into financial security? But 
you know, at the conference board here, we've written a lot about education being the great equalizer around the world. And there's a clear correlation, as you know, and we and, and we know, between the level of education achieved and the expected annual and lifetime earnings. And so creating financial security requires access. It requires, you know, uh, regulated institutions that are, you know, that, 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 you know, level playing field and all that. But it also requires some level of financial understanding and all of that comes back to education. So what can governments and the private sector do separately and together on education in order to help with financial security? Yeah, and I'll just double down on what you said. I I don't think there's any more important part of a successful society than education. And with that comes the ability to be innovative, to create jobs, to create uh, communities that will thrive. Uh, And I don't think that that um, is going to be in any way lessened for the next 100 years plus. Um, And I mean that in the context that in the absence of great education, you won't have the great jobs, you won't reach financial security. As it relates to the partnership, I'll give you an example. We stood up the principal community learning center here at at the company and made it available to any group that could meet certain criteria. There's a group of Hispanics that are working on, uh, and Latinos and Latinx that are focused on programming. We have another group that's focused on financial education. And we reason we chose not to just stroke a check and put the money into the school or the project, we wanted them to come into our building to walk past the security folks to greet and understand what it felt like to be in a professional environment, have access to the cafeteria, have a community learning space with state-of-the-art equipment, and allow our employees, most importantly, to be mentors to these young mentees, these young students, to help them program. And I've gone down for those graduation ceremonies, and I'm telling you, you you have tears coming down your eyes because those kids when they first entered into this building, had no idea that they could ever program. And they, along with four other students as a team, developed and wrote the code in order to solve a problem. And I think that's the partnership part of financial institutions or, frankly, any corporation that prioritizes their community to try to raise the game of everyone in the community, raise raise everyone in the community, and again, we do that through education. I would tell you that is a whole lot more value creation than just stroking a check and saying, hey, someone else go kind of figure this out. Our employees benefit from being mentors and, and we have big brothers and big sisters on campus as well as a, another example, but engaging with those that do have an education in large part is a way to make sure that that next generation of underserved communities can be successful. Yeah, just you know, going into you know the, the last question here, you know, your your industry and and principal, of course, offers retirement products and plans. It's one of the one of the products that we we talked about. A lot of people have little to no retirement savings, and, and this is what you were saying earlier. They're just thinking that Social Security is going to cover it. it. We're talking the U.S. now, but that just isn't the case. You know, how can people? What should people be doing to? prepare for retirement? How do they know how much that they should save and, and you know, what should be the gap with uh, whatever they get from the government? 
I've done commencement address. I've done town hall meetings. I've done hundreds of meetings. And I can save everyone the trouble of going on the web and trying to do a research or do a query for how, do, how much money do I need in retirement. If throughout your 35 to 40 year working career, you set aside 15% of your pay, and that could include an employer match, and it's gonna include social security. If you do that over the course of a working career into a balanced investment option of which there are so many available, you're gonna replace 85% of your pre-retirement income. So if in the next 35 years, you're making hundred grand a year, and you save $15,000 a year right now, you're gonna have $85,000 a year of every year that you live into retirement. And again, there are all sorts of studies, there's all sorts of analysis, and you can use all sorts of programs, but for, the, for, the, for that person making 100 grand 35 years from now, about a third of that's gonna come from social security. The other third comes from their personal savings and a contribution made on behalf of their employer. Yeah, you know, it gets very confusing when you start looking at all these calculators. And this is why people, you know, just don't even think about it because it's it's too complex. But basically, you know, if you use 65 as a retirement age and 85 as a life expectancy, you have to cover your expenses for 20 years. So how much you how much what are your expenses in a year times 20? I mean, that that's not exactly right because there's time value to money, discounts that you know, inflation and everything else. But but you know that that's another way. It's just you just have, you, but you have to look at it. Is your and that's what you're saying, and that's the importance of um, everything that you do at principal. There's a, there's a four trillion dollar gap today, right? Just in the U.S., right? Just in the U.S. And again, your number when you do that calculation, uh, thirty five years down the road, it's going to generate a number that's measured in millions. That intimidates a lot of people. When I simply tell you set aside 15% of what you make today and put it into that employer-based account or your own personal IRA into a 60-40 fund of some sort, over the course of that period of time, it's gonna take care of your retirement needs. But to say to a you know a 24-year-old coming out of college, hey, by the way, you're gonna need three and a half million dollars in order to retire, they they can't compute that. It, it just doesn't. Uh, no, just, and three and a half million is not what it used to be. So anyway, Dan, thanks for all that you're doing at the Principal Financial Group. And thanks for joining us today to share a little bit about financial inc inclusivity. It's been a pleasure. And thank you for what you do uh, at the conference board. It really does matter. And I think these educational sessions are what allow all of us to be better informed on important matters like financial inclusion and financial security. So thank you so much. And thanks to all of you for listening in to CEO Perspectives. Every week, I'll be joined by a prominent thought leader to provide insights on the issues of our time. We'll cover leading topics in geopolitics, economics, public policy, ESG, and more. Please share CEO Perspectives with your colleagues and your friends and your family. I know they're going to want to listen. I'm Steve Odlin, and this podcast has been brought to you by the Conference Board. You've been listening to a podcast from the Conference Board, the indispensable ally that has helped businesses through war, recession, and economic transformation for over 100 years. As recent unexpected economic challenges persist, you can chart a course for the future, which will allow your business to emerge stronger on the other side. Just visit our free economic hub entitled Navigating the Economic Storm, your indispensable guide through the global recession. 
located at www.conference-board.org slash topics slash recession.